Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Pardalo. This is the first episode of our new series titled Commoning. Similar to our Insight series, it will have its own numbering system for reference. As we are aiming to expand the type of content we provide on the podcast, the Commoning series will provide informal discussions among our podcast team, and we will be inviting additional guests to join us. Topics for discussion on this series will be wide open. This may include current events, recent topics on research, teaching, and practice, reflections on previous interviews, or simply whatever comes up next. We want to provide an episode series that is not focused specifically on a guest, but allows for an open conversation on a wide range of topics. We are calling this series the Commoning Series, as we believe the term embodies a core values we are trying to put forward with this podcast, providing a space for open, fun, but also critical conversations for our listeners to share ideas and knowledge that can contribute to our science community. In this first episode of the series, Michael, Courtney, and I are joined by Michael Schoon, an associate professor in the School of Sustainability at Arizona State University. Together, we discuss two questions. First, what makes a good scientist? And second, how do we transparently communicate the limitations of our research without undermining its perceived value for our peers, journals, and the public? This is the In Common Podcast. So there's a couple of things I thought we could start off today, and one of them is, what do you think makes a good scientist? I mean, something that I think about, I think fairly regularly in different forms. Uh, I don't think it comes out as the question, what makes a good scientist? But it comes in other questions like, what is the role of having a, a sort of normative or a strong normative orientation in your research? and how that goes in and affects which types of questions you ask, where you do your research, how you interpret other people's research, and is transparency all we need, for example? If we have transparency, then it's more of a marketplace of ideas and methods and concepts, etc. So I would be interested in, as we have this more open round, thoughts on what you think makes a good scientist. I would think this this differs quite a bit. Michael, what do you think? Yeah, as you were talking, I was I was answering the question. And then as I was doing that, I was enumerating what I think makes a good scientist. And then I was kind of enumerating which of those qualities I think I do or do not have and in what abundance. I mean, so I think given in part how not quite combative, but self-critical science can be, I think being open is important. The people that I've admired who have given good talks are the folks who are able to uh, engage with uh, the audience in a way that responds to their feedback um, without being defensive. And I don't, I don't think that's unique to being a good scientist. I think that's kind of being a good professional person in lots of venues is not being closed off and fragile. Um, that's the first thing that's not actually not the first thing that came to mind. I've, I mean, I've been reading this book. I mentioned to, to a few of you called range by David Epstein, who had been, had written a bunch for like sports illustrated. And his main point is that we overvalue like the cult of the head start, thinking that someone needs to, you know, if you want to be a scientist, you should be solving differential equations by the time you're 11 or something. And his argument is that what you really need to do is diversify for a while to find where you really fit. And even then having breadth versus depth is more important than most of us realize. 
And I really don't know what to think about that because we kind of live in a cult of specialization in academia. So I haven't shared the fact that I've read this book or that I like it with a lot of people, but I think there's something there. There's an answer. There's another answer to this question in that book too. Um, that I think the basic idea is expressed by another book I'm reading called Messy by Tim Harford is that you can get kind of tracked into one way of thinking about things. It's like these algorithms that try to optimize some function, et cetera, and they can get locked into a particular part of the space. And there are this method called simulated annealing actually has the, has the program jump from place to place randomly to like find larger hills to climb. And so he was saying that we need to kind of do the same thing for ourselves. Um, and of course, there's the, there's a scientific anecdote that like, you know, Nobel winners, because of course they should be the standard bearers of everything, um, are more likely to have like non-scientific hobbies. Like they're more likely to like play the flute or something like that. So I think I buy into that as well, that a good scientist is someone who doesn't get too overly tracked into one thing. And yet I'm friends with people that are extremely tracked and very successful doing that. So. I'll stop there. Yeah, I thought about is the role of becoming a more broadly diverse versus becoming a specialist. Do you see that it manifesting within individuals or is that a more towards science as a social organism within teams where you have to put together the right combination of people who think from a generalist perspective, get them some way to cooperate with specialists who can materialize their uh, broad, far ranging and often strange thoughts into actual types of analysis or data collection methods, for example. And I wonder sometimes for myself, do I have to invest more in becoming a generalist? Do I have to become more in becoming a specialist? Or do I have to invest more in cooperating with both sides so that we can make a good team effort? Well, and I feel like we've often, maybe this is just me, but I feel like we've been sort of fed this narrative for people who do interdisciplinary work, that the way you get there is to go deep, specialize, and then go broad. Which sort of goes, um, I guess that could align with what you were just saying, Michael. But the idea, you know, I, I hear from so many people who are leaders in these new interdisciplinary thought spaces that, you know, oh, I, I was trained as an X and then I established myself in that field and now I do this, you know? I mean, it reminds me, Courtney, you know, these, this, um, who does it? ISI has this like highly cited researchers thing, which in general, I don't like prizes. And to me, this is, you know, I tweeted out something smarmy about how we should be giving prizes out for the best reviewers in addition to, or instead of this, because this just exacerbates the arms race of prestige that we're all kind of stuck in. And it's interesting, you look at the names and for a lot of like famous people, I actually don't know what made them famous. I don't know what their like initial specialized work was before they started to kind of broaden out and pontificate more um, to a larger audience. I know that I know the broad pontifications. I don't know like what they did in their twenties and thirties to get them to that point where they were allowed to do that, which feels weird. I feel like I should bone up on like these 10 people that get cited by everyone, but doesn't people know, does anyone who cites them actually know, the stuff that got them started. I, I was going to say that I think there's also this element of being comfortable with yourself. And, you know, if you're kind of a generalist, then do that. And if you're uh, really driven, uh, you know, to into, I don't know, GIS analysis or something, and that's your specialty, then then do that. But um, so I was thinking, 
to be comfortable in yourself. But actually, the more I think about it, the more or the less I'm sure about that, because I think so many in academia are driven very much by their own insecurities and and are motivated by feeling that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing or enough or or good enough or, or whatever. So I'm, I'm not really sure. That I've thought about that a lot, Mike, and I, I, I struggle with this. And a good example of this to me is Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech, which is like the most petulant, insecure speech you can watch. He's just vindictive throughout the whole thing. He's like, you, you know, you 15, 30 years ago, you should have known I was going to be good. It's like, dude, you have everything. Just calm down. You're good enough. And it just seems like, yeah, our brains are not happiness machines. A lot of the times they're like insecure, successful machines. But it turns out that like that is adaptive. Like I struggle with this a lot. Like what, to what extent is success driven by uh, flavors of unhappiness, insecurities of never being good enough? Because those are the people that are, that are gonna keep going that are gonna keep trying to do good work and get the attention for it, et cetera, like, oh. So when, um, Stefan, when you first framed this question, I, when I was thinking about it, I realized there's sort of two different frames that I heard it as. And one is what makes good science and the other is what makes a good scientist. And is a good scientist someone who does good science? And I feel like we're, there's, you know, I feel like that sort of insecurity driven, um, you know, constant questioning, nonstop skepticism can lead to really good science. But do we want a good scientist to be somebody who's a leader, you know, who brings others into a field who like is, and I think I've been realizing over the last couple of years that I have conflated those. Like I have thought that somebody who does good science is a good leader, which isn't necessarily true. <laughs> and, and I think we have a lot of examples of that, you know, and that so what, I don't know, that distinction is, um, is sort of an, uh, like a blurry one for me, you know, where I've, I've been working towards thinking of a good scientist. And I think there's been sort of, this can get mixed in with a lot of other threads that have been going around lately of like, how do we have inclusive and, inclusive and diverse um, research groups? And how do we bring more people into science? And how do we get more perspectives around the table and you know in research and a lot of that has to do with how a, a scientist leads and how they bring others in but is that the same as someone who does good science i'm not sure and and is it valued in the same way yeah well it seems to be that if you're good in your early career you're you're good in your phd or postdoc that you get promoted up into a leadership position which requires a completely different skill set uh, and you might not anymore be doing science but you might be yeah, exactly. Leading the process and managing a team, which is quite different. And to me, it seems historically that we've always heralded scientific achievements. Uh, they're almost always paired to a particular individual. And I don't, from that perspective, even though we've been doing team science for a long time, even if it's gone unrecognized, uh, particularly in awards and the publishing world, do we really know what inclusive team and cooperative science can produce? given that it's been so much put forward, like the leader of a lab or particular individuals are the ones who drive ideas. I'm not sure if we know what that type of science system would, would kick out. Stefan, one, I'll need to get more positive here in a second, but one thing you reminded me of is, I think it's from business where there's this 
trope where you get promoted until you're not good enough to get promoted, which means that everyone is bad at their job. Yeah, exactly. You get promoted into a position where you didn't have any of the skills that you got promoted into. So you're always starting over. I mean, I do think, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of, of that rabbit hole we want to go down, but like the selection process for academia matters a lot, right? Like you can think of this in fairly straightforward it's, it's, it's an evolutionary process where you have, you have a selection mechanism that's selecting for certain traits. If you know what that selection mechanism looks like, you can predict what the population that comes out of it's going to look like themselves. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's similar to medicine where a lot of people, and there's self-selection too, a lot of people go into medicine because it's sciencey and they're smart. And so they think, well, people around me who are sciencey and smart go into medicine. But there's a lot of things that make a good doctor other than being sciencey and smart. There's a lot of things that go into being a good scientist other than being sciencey and smart as well, which I think is what Courtney's point is. is and I you, think yeah. the competitiveness too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. You know, along with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Like the people in the room are there only because they survived a selection process that required that they have certain traits that don't necessarily make it easy for them to get along with other people all the time. Mm. Yeah, one of the points that was made earlier um, was was a, a take on being thick-skinned. You know that we're we're told that from the very beginning. You know, when you get start to get critiqued, uh, you have to you have to be thick-skinned. You have to be tough and be able to take criticism. But I think it it does go beyond that. That you have to actually figure out how to respond to that in a in a in a meaningful way. And and those that can do it, as as you said earlier, uh, Mike those that can do it, you know, live, you know, in the middle of a presentation and can take some uh, comments, which not only are they critical of your work, but they're also often not necessarily very nice or not necessarily even on the mark. They're just kind of nasty comments. Um, and we've all, uh, you know, had to face those and figure out how do you, how do you respond to this in a way that's, uh, that's good for polite company um, and, and, and still make progress. And, and how do you take some of those smarmy comments or nasty comments and, and, and make something uh, useful out of them? These are all little tricks of the trade that we have to, I think, kind of figure out ourselves. I don't know a way to teach those. Hmm. Yeah, it made me think when I was thinking about the question earlier is that we don't, we don't have necessarily those leadership training skills or the personal development skills, which are coupled with uh, graduate education or PhD education. I think if you're lucky and you have a good supervisor or you had good mentors going through, then you can, you can absorb them uh, even passively, even if they're not uh, proactively taught, but you can absorb them through, yeah, just observing and see how different people act. But I think it is, a, it is an issue that we focus too much on what we think makes good science uh, focus on the technical aspects of science and the training and not so much of the social aspects, which create much of the atmosphere, which allows that those technical things to thrive and actually add value. So it reminds me of, is it John Palmer who you interviewed? Parker, 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 right. I always think of his, that interview with him when we start talking about like these group processes mm -hmm. in science and and Mike, what you just said about the like um, the like social dynamic, I feel like there's, especially in an interdisciplinary space, you have these two things going on. One is like, what is or isn't, um, you know, qualified as fitting or legitimate within a field, and then there's also, you know, did you do it right or wrong? 
And those things get really messy. And I think especially when you're interdisciplinary, it's like you sort of get hit with all of these, um, or at least I've experienced this where, you know, people are like, well, where are you going to publish that? And like, is that a real research question? And why didn't you do this instead? Or, you know, that seems like you should have just done a cost benefit analysis and that would have gotten you your solution. Um, and, and so then when you get those, they're never framed as like either this disciplinary fit or this like methods right or wrong, they're all meshed together. And so it makes it really difficult to sort of discern for yourself of like, how do I, what do I take from that? And like, how do I move forward with it? And what do I leave behind, you know? And I don't, I don't know if that's something with like just the social norms that we haven't really figured out as a group of like how to have those conversations, but it does feel like we could work a little bit more in our terms of engagement on like how we facilitate that sort of feedback, you know, so that people can grow and not necessarily just get pushed out, you know? This is a, a, a great question, uh, Stefan, in terms of how, I, I keep thinking of it in terms of how we should be engaging with our students um, and what should we be teaching them. Um, particularly, um, a, lot of, a lot of my own uh, work is, is more qualitative. So it, it's, it's in some ways, I, I don't, I don't wanna uh, overstate this point, but in some ways it's, it's easier if you know that you're teaching someone econometrics and here's, you know, you know, the basic level, here's a more advanced level and so on. And you're building these, these very clear skill sets and it's not nearly as clear to me at least um, how to do that with um, more qualitative research. And then as we get into some of these other skills that we're talking about today, it becomes even more challenging, I think. How do you develop these, these skills? How do you develop these traits? Are, these, are some of them uh, things that can be learned or taught I mean, I think part of the issue here is the diseconomy of scale that we face in education. You know, past a certain point, adding more students to a classroom makes it, you know, it spreads the teacher, the professor around more thinly. And a lot of these skills, particularly the qualitative hard to measure things are learned through mentorship, I think, and having a model um, that shows you how things can be done and who's ideally also invested in like your own growth and gives you feedback, right? Like that's, um, you know, there's been lots of discourse in the last several years about the importance of mentorship, et cetera. Like, I think everyone, I mean, I don't know, I would love to have more of a mentor than I've had for a while. Cause I think you don't grow out of the, the need for having someone model behavior for you and, and give you feedback. But the problem is, is in education is that's really, what's really valuable for the mentee is also valuable for the mentor, but also very expensive for the mentor, right? Like it's incredibly energetically and sometimes emotionally expensive and exhausting to like be a good mentor for someone. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to find that situation. And I think just the, the economics of, of education in general, I don't know if it's in this country or elsewhere, you know, we're going very much in the other direction where we've got like large degree factories and norms that tell professors that they should be, you know, the default is that a, that a professor is more unavailable to students than available to them in a lot of places. Put it all online. Yeah. 
I do feel like that goes back to this science versus scientist question too, where it's like, if you, you know, the incentives right now are, are what you just said, well, not only a degree factory, but like a paper factory, you know, mm -hmm. you need to be running your lab, like a machine to get papers out, which isn't necessarily doing the traditional mentorship model that we hear. I guess I was always told this in sports with a coach, but I think this fits for, you know, a mentor in research too, where it's like the goal of that mentor is to get to a place where they don't need you anymore. Your, your mentee is sort of grown beyond you. And I don't feel like that's really, that's not really built into, I mean, I, certainly there are, are a lot of mentoring relationships that abide by that and, and work towards that. And I have a lot of mentors like that, that I'm super grateful for, but I don't think that that's necessarily the norm. It's like the norm is maybe I'm being too pessimistic now. The norm I think is, you know, I'm mentoring you if I can get you to publish. Well, I mean, this is, we, in our conversation with Frank, he went off about this for a while about his relationship with his PhD students. And he basically said like, look, if, if my name doesn't go on these papers at some point that they're leading, then I'm not gonna work as hard to get PhD students. Like that's kind of the way, that's the machine that I'm in. And he wasn't, um, you know, I don't think he was admitting some kind of mea culpa. He was just saying, look, this is the way it is. These are my incentives. And so I think mm -hmm. it very much is like, I'm going to mentor you if, if I can get something out of the relationship as well, beyond the, the, the psychological value of paying it forward. Yeah. I do think it goes back to the, to the metrics that we use. I was thinking I posted on Twitter earlier this week, we were going to have a discussion about how can we think about valuing transdisciplinary methods a little bit more and what are some of the alternative metrics we can start to think about beyond some of the standard impact factor, number of publications, whatever, some of the H index, et cetera, that actually values and puts incentives for lecturers, teachers, professors to invest in the time so that it's, that it's valued and they feel like they're valued by investing. It doesn't have to be left to an intrinsic motivation or a kind of a goodwill feeling. I would be interested if you have any thoughts about that, or if you've had any discussions about what some of those alternative metrics might be. I mean, for one, I do think it'd be nice to have like, and people love prizes, right? And academics are no exception. Like mm -hmm. have a prize for the best reviewers. Each journal could have like the, you know, once a year they have, here's the best three reviewers that we had, you know, give them, give them some money, right? Cause money is one way to signal prestige. Like make mm -hmm. it, I think at some point you need to make it visible. You know, we need to stop talking about how invisible the things that matter are and say like, no, we're going to make some of these things visible. I mean, it's always tricky. Like, do you, yeah. Then you have, you introduce like a, a non-trivial measurement problem once you have to decide what the quote unquote best reviewer is. It's not the reviewer that does the most reviews. That's right. For having a money incentive, you'd have to have some sort of editorial saying, okay, this is a valid, this is a valued review that is worth being paid out. Otherwise you just have, I'd be uh, doing 30 reviews a month and uh, getting an extra, uh, who knows how much to Yeah, to people would just do reviews to pay the bills. Exactly. Then, yeah. Well, I mean, on the other hand, you know, people like postdocs in between contracts, maybe it's not a bad idea. <laughs> Before you find your next position, you can just do some reviews if they're good quality. Right. If the, if the editor says this is a good quality review, we're willing to pay for that, then there you go. Get your however much, 100 bucks or something. Yeah, actually. Really mess with the 
the uh, Springer model of uh, uh, publishing house, right? Yeah, exactly. I had an idea a while back because to some extent, the publishing industry was like the music industry, like back in the late 90s, where all of the, the big major players had all the distribution and rights benefits. And then now we have models like Spotify, where everything's basically free, and then they get they get paid for ads based on per click, but all the content is put for free. And I wonder if we had a system where all you'd have to get the big publishers to agree, the big three or four of them, five of them, uh, to say, we just make all of our content for free into a single platform. And then the ad gets paid by ads. Anyone can go in for free. It gets paid per click or per view or something on the PDF. And they could make money through that instead. And then that would be an entirely open access model. And I wonder if something like that would work. And then, then ad companies are going for uh, the, the names with the big H indices because uh, there's more clicks. Yeah, I guess it would be like the pop songs on Spotify. So you have a Spotify for, for scientific PDFs and everyone can access it for free, everything. And then I the think, top ones are getting millions, millions of views or whatever. I think Probably we have to bring back Napster. I think that's really the solution. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just go to the dark web and then share there. I'm sure a lot of folks are doing that in the various sites. I know. I think that exists. Yeah. Well, kind of research gate, but sometimes, you know, if you put an article up, they'll send you, a, they'll take it down. I mean, I also do think that teaching should be a more visible part of our professional identity as well, which is essentially invisible, which is bizarre. Like, I would like to know how much my colleagues do or do not care about teaching. I actually have an idea. <laughs> for some of them well for the for probably for michael mike you've probably been on a few hiring committees i would imagine i mean what is it when you're looking at someone's uh a postdoc or a phd student coming into a faculty position how what do you look at their teaching experience presumably these these folks are going to have to teach a class or two or three or it might even be pretty heavy in teaching uh is that really a valued criteria when you look at that, what is the discussion around the table about their, their teaching potential or how you how their teaching abilities might be? I mean, we, we definitely talk about it, what classes they could teach, what gaps we have in the curriculum that we'd like new classes for, or what uh, current classes do we need uh, more instructors for, and that they would, that would they fit that? Um, we take pretty seriously what they put into their teaching statements. We often do not require them to teach a class or anything like that, which is of course probably a great idea if that's a big concern. Um, so that may show some of our, our own bias. I mean, it's my experience is that many of them are, are most of them are driven by the, by the, the research talk, mm -hmm. um, but, but we do, take a serious look at their at their research or at their teaching statement teaching philosophy what they can teach yeah i mean i would say for us i mean there certainly is i mean you know dartmouth is a small university that also doubles as a liberal arts college etc courtney knows this better than anyone there's a focus on teaching i mean one of the main things dartmouth does is it doesn't have tas teach courses so by and large the courses are taught by professors there's a few small like exceptions to that um, you know, when someone goes up for tenure here, the college solicits like 80 letters of, of evaluation from former students and usually gets like 25 or 30 back, like letters from former students. So that counts. I mean, I think part of the challenge is, is, I don't know, maybe this is an hypothesis that 
any university is going to struggle to change the norms on its own because of the process of external review that's so tied to tenure evaluation. Mm -hmm. And that's the space where the teaching becomes invisible is when you have the external letter writers, which form such an important part of the process, don't see you teach, aren't aware of it to a large extent. And, and I think my impression is focused more on the research identity that you have. So as long as you're embedded in that large academic context, I think it's, you can push the needle to some extent, but people still have these incentives that are, are beyond your institution. And I think that gets even further exacerbated as we look into the transdisciplinary work. You know, how do you, again, this is back to your question about what are other metrics that we should be looking for or assessing because at least teaching gets uh, uh, probably a, a, a cursory or a passing notice. Um, but if you're doing a lot of community outreach, uh, giving, you know, whether it's giving public talks or educational outcomes or, or, or forum, um, or if you're working with community groups or doing some kind of activism or something, I mean, it just disappears. Um, and, and again, you're, you're being assessed as an individual if you're up for tenure uh, or promotion, as a unit if you're um, being compared, you know, in the latest US News and World Report rankings or whatever other rankings, and as a university. I mean, so we're, each of those levels is being measured by things, by a very small set of uh, criteria. Yeah, that was my that was my next question. I was wondering, what are does that because it trickles down for how universities are ranked in these global ranking systems, and how does teaching get into those types of indicators? You know, at least in the U.S. system, folks know the colleges because because they want to go there and get an education. The kids want to go there and get educated at those colleges, and they don't necessarily know why those particular universities have a good ranking or reputation. It might not at all be linked necessarily to the teaching or the program that they're going to go and study. It might only be because they had a Nobel Prize winner or et cetera, who was in some other faculty that then got a lot of attention. I'm not sure. Something I should look into more. I looked into this once for about half an hour, so I'm well equipped to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, I think to some extent, like things like class size is used, like you can imagine that things that are a little bit easier to measure are gonna be low hanging fruit for making these comparisons. And I've heard that like expert knowledge, like they'll talk to the deans or the presidents or like a group of folks, right? It's like, how do you choose the NBA all-stars? Well, it's, it's a certain set of folks in the, in the press corps that like decide, is that right? Did I just, I have no idea actually how that's decided. Um, it's something like that though. It's a bunch of insiders or something that chooses that. Um, well, it makes me think, it makes me think about when you brought this up earlier on the like highly cited um, scientists, right? Of like, who's like, how did they get there? How much of that has to do with the actual articles and the publications, right? That you've said that most of those people, you don't even know what those pivotal pieces might've been versus how much of it is these, I mean, now I'm like sort of taking us back to these soft skills, right? The more leadership, the more ability, like Mike, when you were talking about this sort of more community-based work or outreach or education, I feel like some of that really can play into creating a, that persona that can 
talk to, you know, have this fluency in science communication that allows them to rise to a place where they are respected by the press corps or that person that they go to, you know? I just don't know that this is like a, a real question. I don't know how much of it has to do with that foundation that you built in your career in the in your research field versus, you know, the ability to sort of be and embody that leadership style, you know, or communication style. Hmm. I, I think it's also um, just a, a way of signaling too. So if you're a student, how much of your decision is based on anything about the actual school or is it just on reputation? And if it's by reputation, is it really because I know in four years, if I go to uh, a particular university, I'm more likely to get a, a, a nice job um, because of that, right? And, and, and I think that's for, uh, to some extent for graduate schools too. Um, so we have, we have this, um, this desire to signal certain things and this comes uh, as faculty members, as universities, um, and so on. It just keeps coming back to this reputational uh, benefit. And, and, and it's e these are easy things to do. I, I mean, ASU has won, I think, five years in a row or six years in a row, number one uh, school for innovation in the country. And they plaster this on posters and on billboards and everything. It says, you know, ASU number one, MIT two, Stanford three, or whatever the order is, right? And they say that over and over again, they want to show ASU number one. And I think we do a lot of innovative things, but I, I don't know what the metrics are for how they select that. Um, and is ASU just targeting those metrics because this is something that they've won and they can continue to, to, to win? Um, not, not to denigrate my employer. I, I don't mean it in that way. Um, but it's, it's the same thing with if it's a business school rankings or med school rankings or any other kind of ranking, they, they have the set of metrics and you can play to those metrics. Well, this is good heart's law, right? Like as soon as an indicator becomes a metric for success, it stops being a good indicator because of the strategic behavior that you see to optimize for that. Right. I, I mean, I love, I, and I have my students read this all the time, the, the original uh, speech that Kuznets gave to Congress when he introduced, uh, I think it was, it wasn't GDP, I think it was. It was either GDP or GNP, I thought it was. GNP, but, and, and he, you know, he basically says, remember, this doesn't measure anything that we actually care about. This is only a measurement of, you know, something to that effect. This only measures economic output and that doesn't really measure anything that we care about well um how did that work out um you know now if if there's a single metric for how we measure uh success at a national level it seems to be gdp yeah i mean the indicator becomes a thing which then is important not the original goal that the indicator was designed to try to measure then we shift the whole system towards that. I think you see that with H index too. We tell young scholars early on that that's super important, that they have to make sure you have a certain level or have some sort of presence on this mystery Google Scholar page, then they will tailor the type of science that they do so that it works to fit into that. 
So Courtney had brought up another question yesterday in our chat, which I thought was also interesting because I do think about it quite a lot. And that is, how do we balance this, this knowledge, which I think most of us have that, that there is uncertainty and there are methodological limitations in all of the studies that we do individually. And how can we go about portraying that and communicating it in a constructive way without undermining our science to our peers, without portraying or giving a bad image to our work to a journal, with, so we can still put our discipline and work in a positive light to other disciplines and then also to the public, which in some instances is becoming increasingly skeptical uh, that science has certain flaws and uncertainty and methodological limitations. And to me, it's, it's so obvious in all of our studies that we have, there's so many limitations. And I, and I, but I still have this kind of uncomfort when I'm writing in the discussion section, this methodological limitations that I don't want to make it three pages necessarily, like maybe it could be or should be to be fully transparent about the decisions that we made in that study so that everyone understands exactly how to interpret our data and to how do we got to those conclusions because it might hurt your chances that you're kind of under, undercutting yourself, right? And that seems like a pretty big problem especially when we, we think about doing meta-analyses and things like this, where folks are not always entirely transparent. And I think not necessarily because they're not aware of it, but because it's not really valued to be transparent and to talk about the flaws of your own work. I mean, I think it'd be nice. I mean, so one way to think about this is, do you want, is it, you know, bottom up or top down? Like, should people just start trying to write longer discussion sections or could journalists start asking for you know, could you have like a bit of a nudge from a journal that says, okay, now imagine that in your recommendation section at the end, a policymaker will actually implement this and it'll affect thousands of lives. What do you actually now feel comfortable recommending? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or having a, you know, mandatory methodological discussion section where you have to discuss about what the, the shortcomings I don't know if shortcomings and flaws are even the right terms to use for that because it kind of assumes that there is something that went wrong with that when I think it's really inherent in any method that there are some limitations maybe is the better word. There are just limitations to what how it can be applied and there is a set of methodological choices which are made mostly subjectively to serve the research question that you asked in the context in a lot of cases. So just be transparent about those set of, of methodological choices. But I don't see that often too much and I understand there's there's quite good skepticism, especially with the with place in journals. Could you have like a replicability checklist? Like at the end of a submission, you have to say, now could someone with the information you've given actually try to reproduce what you've done? I don't know if replicability is the right term. I think for some sciences that's really important. Uh, for some qualitative, place-based, temporally dependent work, I don't know if replicability is the right uh, thing to argue about there. I would say more, just more transparency in general. Why did you use the certain assumption, et cetera? I do see that there, you know, there is limited, there is limited space in a discussion section for most journals, and especially with this move towards policy recommendations or policy relevance or practical relevance, that is, I think, valuable, of course, but it crowds out space for other types of methodological discussions and theory, like the contribution of that particular work to a theory to have more in-depth discussions. Sorry, Courtney. Well, I was just gonna say, I think that, um, you know, like taking it a 
layer higher or, you know, zoom in a little big picture. I feel like something that I've been thinking about a lot with the U.S. and the last four years and beyond that even is, um, is really, really in relationship to the public. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I feel as concerned about like, if I write a paper, Stefan, will you like, will, will you be able to understand the limitations in it? I feel like I'm pretty well equipped to read your paper and be like, oh, well, he did that. You know, there's definitely some uncertainty in there, but like, I, it's justifiable. And now I can, I can put those conclusions in the context of that decision. I just don't think that when these conversations come into the public, that there is that level of discernment or that, that um, process of like taking the context and understanding the relevance of a finding for a context. And instead, I feel like often what happens is it becomes, it can become politicized and the uncertainty that we use to speak about results can be used to undermine like the whole process. And so I've been struggling with how do I think about you know, I, I think, Michael, I think you brought this up in the chat too of like, you know, this whole idea of like everything's socially constructed and there's a range between positivist research and more socially constructed work. Um, and I sort of like play in both of those spaces, which, you know, and, um, and so it's tricky to figure out then how I can reflect upon the you know uncertainty and be transparent in that while also not undermining the establishment of new research and a body of knowledge because I really do believe in that and I believe in the process and I think that the skepticism and the uncertainty is really important for that because that's what lets us grow but I don't think that that is really valued by the public at large or you know I know there are more than one publics but I, I don't I, know. Yeah. I, so to that point, I think it's funny whenever the public is, uh, there's this concern that, you know, there's this conspiracy of scientists about climate change, for instance, as if every scientist isn't completely influenced by the desire to be the one that shows that everyone else is wrong. If I could be that person, you know, I just win every accolade there is, right? I mean, what's, we're driven, I mean, we are driven by science uh in in ways that herd behavior and rewarded for doing certain things but we're also we also have this inherent uh maverick streak i think in so many scientists that want to be the one that shows that their way is the right way um and i think science uh the public misses that aspect of science that clearly we're all in on this you know this this scam uh that's that's a little bit crazy or a lot bit crazy it is yeah and in a way i feel like almost what you were just saying stefan about like if we could really ramp up the transparency it would feed that more because i feel that language that we use around well you know we have to situate this this is only relevant in this context and let me break down what else i could have done and and then you know i've seen I've you know seen in executive orders that that's cited as a reason to limit the research that's being drawn upon, which is scary, you know. Um, and so I don't know how, like, how do you play that 
play that balance. I don't want to necessarily want to play it, but how do you walk that balance? I don't know. It is an interesting question, which relates to this other idea that it seems that, well, peer-reviewed publishing is like an internal communication tool, I would say, for scientists. It, and I don't, it's not really designed in a way which is communicated to people who are even outside of your own kind of field and discipline. It's hard to read papers in like the medical field where I have nothing, I don't know anything about it. I understand kind of what an experiment is or some basic methodological approaches uh, and so maybe some of the, the analysis that they use, but I really don't, it, it's hard for me to really interpret anything about that particular science. Like I, I, and I don't know if the public really understands that, that, or maybe you guys would see it differently than that, but I, I would kind of view it like that. And when I see like news articles, like cherry picking certain studies or they get put out into like the public eye from particular studies, to me, it just seems a bit silly because it's almost impossible for anyone to understand what that study actually did. It's really hard for me to understand sometimes what people in my own field are doing uh, even with a detailed read of the method section in the appendix to really unpack what it all means, et cetera. And also this idea that, you know, one study is not going to be the study which has the finding, which proves the fact, which changes the world. You know, we have this aggregate model where a whole field has a lot of studies which use different methods and kind of points theory in the general direction. And over time, you kind of get some aggregate consensus, maybe, maybe not. But I think that's part of it too, that the public infiltrates some like some media. They'll they'll try to in, they'll try to kind of intercept some of our internal communications, which our publications they try to portray what they mean into the outside world, and it doesn't often go that great. And that calls to question a lot of science communication. And also, I have this I don't know this uh, I guess recursive notion back into some of our our past uh, or earlier discussions today about you know, a field like uh, economics, which has lately been taken to task for how they operate as a field. Um, I mean, people are always picking on economists. So that's, uh, I, I know most economists are used to that, but, but within the field, you know, like how they recruit and how they critique and everything has been shown to be detrimental to uh, females and minorities. And I don't think that that was set out by economists as what they were trying to do, but by nature of how they operate as a field, they've had these effects that they're now trying to reconcile with how they operate as a field. Um, mm. I mean, that's just kind of a microcosm of, of the scientific, scientific enterprise in general. Uh, I don't know, this is a hard one. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck a bit on Mike's comment about, you know, this is like the challenge of, of a lot of science and it's hard to not, I don't know, it's hard to not be offensive. Um, I mean, but I, I have found it a struggle to, I mean, science is a social enterprise done by people, right? And so whenever you get people, you're gonna have the normal range of behaviors, including, um, you know, a lot of, the, the weird thing about it is that science is supposed to be kind of for the public good. And so you, but you'll see a lot of people who are researching um, public goods that it, when you interact with them seem rather self-absorbed. And this is not everyone. I'm not being like, oh, all scientists, right? But it's like this weird social experience that you all often have. I remember like a while ago, I was talking to some people in a bar at like a, you know, a sciencey thing. And they were, you know, a couple of them were like big names in the theory of like cooperation and psychology, et cetera. 
And they were talking about like when the best time to win a Nobel prize is. And I'm just like, this is so uninspiring to like, you're, you're, you, you, you research cooperation and like how we benefit the public. And all we're worried about here is like when we get our next piece of candy. And mm. So this is where my brain went. And I'm not <laughs> sure it's like that helpful for the larger discussion, but it's. Well, it gets back to the metrics. So we know that what the, the, the types of metrics we have draw a certain type of people who are particularly good at following metrics. Uh, and kind of thrive on the continual achievement of getting to the top of those metric rankings. I mean, I talked about selection processes earlier. I mean, I think there is a bit of a, you know, this is, this is another version of the winner's right history argument, right? That we have this idea that the metrics are, you know, we have this kind of this mythology that there's this perfect labor market that's deciding who gets the attention and who doesn't and who gets the prestigious position and who doesn't based on this, like, this quality they pluck out of the ether, this essential quality of different people based on some how good they are. And it has nothing to do with uh, how well people market themselves, how well they brand themselves, how much they want the attention, all these other things that we know kind of matter, but feel very unkind and cynical to comment on. And maybe I'm just using this space now to actually like air some of these thoughts because we've called this podcast like a safe space. But I struggle with this and it's, and Courtney went back, well, Courtney was, we were talking about the Google Scholar page and there is, you know, in the interview I had with John Parker, um, it was very refreshing to talk to like a sociologist of science who talks articulately about things like a cumulative advantage and the Matthew effect. Like, I don't think if you really want to compare Google Scholar pages, I think you should take the log base 10 or whatever, the log base of whatever to them, because once you get the first thousand citations, you're going to get the next 1000 much more easily. And once you get 2000, the next thousand is going to be even easier. Like the difference between someone who has 100 and 1000 citations to me is the same thing as someone who has a thousand and 10,000. It's the same increment because it's just as hard to go from the first to the second, second to the third. And yet we have this system that gives such dis disproportionate weight to the people at the top, I mean, it's striking. Mm. And it's, I don't know, this was not the question that Courtney asked and I'm trying in my mind as I'm speaking to tie it back to that. But I think that really is a challenge. Like we, we, we kind of, we have these dueling psychologies. A part of us wants to be more inclusive and diverse and say, oh, we're gonna, you know, support folks that have been historically marginalized. And yet we still have this ferocious prestige bias that has us all paint like it's it's honestly like the academic version of you know assuming that the wealthy are wealthy because they earned the wealth that they got and academics are broadly liberal and so we say oh well that's not true you know his, history matters etc but then we we buy into the same logic all the time when it comes to our own currency no i think i think that's true i think that we're I think we are biased. I don't know if it's a human tendency to think that uh, our achievements and successes are somehow our own, the, the product of our own free will and uh, self-competency and not so much the luck. And, and John, John, I believe also talked about that in the, in the podcast. He did. I mean, it's humbling and jarring at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the flip side of that too um, has been brought up in a, in a recent book that one of my grad students has been pushing, um, uh, 
Michael Sandel's book on uh, the tyranny of merit hmm. and how hmm. society is becoming so, I was going to say bifurcated, but it's, it's multiple bifurcations, right? And, and this push, and, and it's, it's exactly what you were saying, uh, Michael, about the, about your, your log, logarithmic scale for Google citations that the, that the meritocracy, you know, further winnows, but the point of the book is actually the opposite. And um, it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you know the old, the old comedy movie Stripes, but um, with the person saying, don't call me stupid, you know, don't call me stupid. And it's a huge chunk of society saying, don't call me stupid. Like, just because I'm not in this narrow, 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 narrow group of people at the, you know, the, the Zuckerbergs of the world or, or the political elite or the economic elite or whatever, it doesn't mean that I'm some worthless human, that I have worth in, in, in who I am. And so this is a pushback saying that a lot of what we're seeing in current politics is, is pushback against this. Like, I'm not stupid. I'm, I'm just not in this, this uh, complete race, um, which is, which is uh, a, an interesting take because we all get caught up in, in, in the race at, at various points. I think that there's a connection maybe between that idea and Courtney's question, right? Because I think a lot of the challenge is this idea that it's a race, right? This idea that we need to get a head start. And if you're not at point A, B, C to get to D by the time you're X years old, like that drives, I think sometimes um, that makes it, that, that puts us in a psychological space where we're less comfortable sharing our flaws and our vulnerabilities and the limitations of our work, right? Because we need to get the next paper out and the next paper out. So we don't have time to write those two pages because that's not gonna, you know, exposing ourselves in that way is not gonna help us win the race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think so too. And I don't know, like maybe you have an insight about this. If you'd ever discuss with any other journal editors about how you prioritize that. I mean, I look at some of the the most prestigious journals, right? I think Nature, Science, some of these, they put they marginalize the method section and they sensationalize the findings, right? And it's it's kind of skinnying down the justification, which would be the introduction as to why this research is important getting straight to the results without reading the methods and then putting the methods in a smaller font at the end of the paper. And most of it's in the appendix. And I think that's, the, it should be the other way around. Um, and it seems to be somewhat sensationalizing the work and, and just kind of reinforcing that type of mentality where we, Oh, we don't really care about the flaws. Let's just try to find the headline and try to put these papers forward as the ones which are the paper and the answer. Yeah, I know. Um, in response to that, I know that uh, Marco Janssen, who's now the editor-in-chief for Ecology and Society, will not send out a, a, a modeling paper unless there's a full um, ODD, what is that, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the full write-up on how this model works um, mm -hmm. and wants to see all that and, and, and have it uh, published someplace that people can access it. So if, if you're going to send in a modeling paper, uh, he wants to be able to to be able to take it apart. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've, I've had conversations with him about that as a reviewer then, uh, well, you know, 
I don't really know this software or how, you know, I don't know how this model works myself. I'm not an expert on that. How am I supposed to do that? He goes, that part actually is much of much less concern to him than that they're willing to be completely open about it. Mm -hmm. And so it may not be that you're tearing apart this, whatever kind of model it is, agent-based model or econometric model or whatever. Um, but if somebody's willing to, you know, share the, the inner workings of it, um, that's, that's already a, a big step forward. I think that's great. And I do think it's for some methodologies, it's, it can be more effective than others. It seems you very useful for models. I do. I think it was in Jacopo's interview, uh, uh, that Courtney and Michael, that you guys did where he, we were talking about with qualitative work. This is, I think particularly problematic. And I, th I think he was saying that it should be mandatory that at least you have your, your questionnaire and your, your guideline of the questions that you ask, but I'm not sure if that is enough. And, and I would see myself positioned as, as mainly a qualitative researcher and most of my work is doing that. And I'm still unsure about how to make that work a little bit more transparent, uh, particularly in the review process. And I've also reviewed qualitative papers where, you know, you basically, I hope they did what they said, cause I don't, there's, I can't look at the interviews and there wasn't much code provided here. And they said they did some coding, inductive coding process in Max QDA or in vivo or something. And that's as best as it seems reasonable, but I just have to go on trust here. And that doesn't seem like a reasonable strategy. Yeah, I struggle with that too. And I'm not sure. I mean, it's the balance there between, um, you know, protecting your participants and not, you know, exposing a full interview to mm -hmm. a, a repository. And then also the, you know, the potential issues that can happen if somebody else who wasn't necessarily situated in the research context takes that data out of context. And I, so I have not yet put qualitative interviews into a repository. Um, but I think, you know, it seems like we should be working towards that. I just don't, I, I, I don't know. It's a tricky gray area that I agree. Mm -hmm. No, there are many, I think the ethical reasons are the main reason why they're not shared at the moment. And there's no obvious and simple solution that I've seen at least to help, you know, at least provide a little bit more transparency about how that process works. I mean, I, I struggle though, when I fill out that, like, is your data available? And I'm like, no, it's not because I, you know, in my IRB protocol said that it would be private and. But trust me, I have it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think maybe a good place to start is to make sure that each side is not getting too self-righteous against the other side. Like there's good arguments in, in favor of both positions, you know, transparency and enclosure. And I think a lot of times we can't even get off the ground because one side is feeling, each side is kind of feeling morally indignant that the other side would even consider right and, and i think we get stuck if we can get out of that space like that's a good start well folks should we wrap this up i want to say that it's looked the entire time like mike has a sheen of a halo around his head because there's light behind him it's quite pleasant thanks for tuning in if you are new to the podcast feel free to explore our previous episodes on our website www.incommonpodcast.org they can also be found on just about any other podcast player. If you're on Twitter, you can connect with us there 
where we share updates, new episodes, and blog posts associated with the podcast. Thanks again. 